We're thinking today on the subject of knowing yourself. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, probably the, one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, I think one of his great strengths, and I think this partly came from him originally being a medical doctor before he became a preacher, one of his great strengths was his emphasis on properly being able to diagnose the problem before you seek the solution. Now, that's true in every area of life, but it is so true in the spiritual realm. We need to properly diagnose what the spiritual problem is before we will get the right answer. In living the Christian life, after knowing what God is like, the next most important thing is knowing truly who we are ourselves, what we really are like, what we are like within. And this means seeing ourselves with our sin. This isn't easy, this isn't comfortable, but it's absolutely necessary. And this is what we're seeking to do today learning what we're really like, what we're really like as a people corrupted by sin. And so today, what we're going to do is just focus on verse 5 of Isaiah 6, which says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, in this verse, Isaiah says four things about himself and the people around him. Woe is me. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. But the key thing, though, is the last phrase there. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah says these four things about himself and others, in the light of what he has just freshly discovered about God. And this is so important. True knowledge of ourselves can only happen when we begin to have a true knowledge of God. True knowledge of ourselves only comes when we have a true knowledge of God. Now, so... Before we go and look at this verse about ourselves, let's quickly recap what we learned last time in Isaiah's vision of God in verses 1 to 4. Do you remember he begins in verse 1 with the exalted king? He says, I saw the Lord. And the word Lord there is not the word Jehovah. It's the word for a king, for a sovereign, the one who is ruling over everything, the one who is high and exalted. And then we spoke of the worship God in verses 2 to 3. And we were thinking of the seraphim, these amazing angelic creatures with six wings, and how with two wings they covered their faces. They wouldn't look at God, these awesome creatures. God's majesty was so great they wouldn't look at him. With two, they covered their feet. They were hiding themselves. They were basically saying, don't look at us. Focus on the Lord. And with two, they flew which speaks of an activity motivated by their knowledge of God and his greatness. And then we thought of the awesome Lord, looking in verses 3 to 4. We think of what those 
angelic creatures cried out, holy, holy, holy. And we thought of how that word holy speaks of three things. It speaks of purity. It speaks of being separated from God, removed from God. It speaks of God's transcendence, God being so high above us, God being on a different level to us, so pure, so removed from, so far above us is this awesome God. And we've noted how that word holy is repeated three times for emphasis, saying that God's purity, his holiness is on a totally different scale to what we can imagine. And then we think of how they cried about his glory, how the whole earth is full of his glory, which speaks of his substance, his worth, which is seen in the world all around us, in the world he has made. And you remember, the result of this vision of God, the result of being in the presence of this awesome God of holiness, was that Isaiah observed the whole temple shaking. Look there at verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The smoke was to hide God's presence so that Isaiah could survive this. But not only was the temple shook up, Isaiah himself was shaken as well. You see, God's glory, God's holiness, the, the majesty of who he is, isn't just something that needs to be in our heads. It's something that needs to be felt experienced in our hearts. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul speaks about someone who comes into a, a service of worship as God's word is being shared. And this is what he says. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So this is a, someone, a non-believer, casually comes in off the street. And there's such a sense of God's presence. They're convicted. Their heart is revealed in the beauty and the glory of this God. And it's when we begin to grasp what God is like in his holiness and glory, we then will begin to have a right understanding of ourselves. And so this leads us to our main point today, which is Isaiah's vision of himself here in verse 5. And we're going to take this verse just one phrase at a time. And it begins with, woe is me. Woe is a old-fashioned word. It doesn't mean what you say to a horse when it's going fast. Woo, it's W-A. It means it's a cry of despair that comes from a knowledge and fear of being doomed. It's the opposite of the word blessed. Jesus spoke on the one hand of those who are blessed because of his grace, and then he spoke on the other hand of the scribes and Pharisees and say to them, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. Woe is speaking about people being condemned. Now, it was a common thing for the Old Testament prophets to declare a message of woe against other people. 
But what Isaiah does here is very unusual for a prophet when he says, woe is me. And before we can ever point an accusatory finger at anyone else, we need to be aware of our own sin and the consequences that that sin will bring. And so, I hope you understand that this is not a message for the person beside you or in front of you. This is a message for you. We have to face up to the reality of our own sin, which condemns us. Woe is me. And then he says, I am lost. The NIV translates this, I am ruined. The King James, I think it's the best translation, says, I am undone. The picture here is of Isaiah's whole understanding of his life and himself unraveling before the awesomeness of God. You see, Isaiah probably came into the temple feeling pretty good about himself. But then everything unravels. It's a bit like a, a piece of material. You pull a thread and all of it begins to come apart. Isaiah was a prophet of God. He wasn't a, a drunkard. He wasn't an adulterer or a thief. And yet God's holiness overwhelms him. He basically begins to fall apart. His understanding of himself falls apart. A great sense of guilt consumes him in the presence of God. And Isaiah only begins to have a right view of himself when he has a right view of God. We can never emphasize that too much. One of the reasons today there is so little understanding of sin, of, of its seriousness, and so little conviction for sin is because people have lost sight of God, his, his majesty, his holiness, his glory. Nancy DeMoss has written a book, The Lies Women Believe, over half a million of these books have been sold. It's a book, hopefully, the women will be using in the women's midweek in the autumn time. But Nancy DeMoss says this, the Puritans of the 17th and 18th century were known for their commitment to holiness and obedience. From all outward appearances, there is little for which they could be faulted. Most people do not think of them as great sinners. But as you read their writings, you discover that they thought of themselves as great sinners. Now, this is a crucial bit. You'll see it's come up. Because they walked in close communion with God, they cultivated a sense of horror of their sin, no matter how insignificant it might seem to others. There's something encouraging about this. If you are growing as a Christian, there should be a sense in which you are beginning to feel you're, you're getting worse as a sinner. Not because you are getting worse, but as you get closer to God, His light exposes a sin in your life more and more. I wonder, do you know anything of this awareness of your own sin? Have you really experienced a sense of conviction 
that you're unclean before God and deserving his condemnation. Can you echo the words that Paul says when he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. When I was driving out of Uri yesterday evening, and that was on a little banner somebody faithfully had put there in the center of Uri. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Do you have that sense that you are such a terrible sinner? I know an elder in the church, quite a deep-thinking elder. I remember him saying to me that one time he came to profess faith in Christ. He says it wasn't real. It didn't last. And then later on, he came to profess faith in Christ again. This time it was real. And this time it did last. And he says, William, the difference was that second time I had real conviction of sin. We need to have that sense that we are guilty, hell-deserving sinners before God. There's no hope for us. No hope for us until we realize that who we are by nature is so people who are so unworthy before God and unclean. The third thing that Isaiah says here is, I am a man of unclean lips. Now remember, these are the words of a prophet, a man who would have been revered for his words. Yet before God, he is aware of the, how inadequate his words are, how unclean his words are. And you know, our, our words, and particularly our most unguarded words, reveal the nature of our hearts. I wonder, have you ever heard someone say a bad word and, and then they'll say, oh, sorry, it, it slipped out. Uh, my father used to say, well, if it wasn't then, it wouldn't come out. And when badness comes out of our lips, what it reveals is the state of our heart. Our, heart, our words reveal that within our heart there lurks bitterness, Lust, pride, selfishness, greed, wrong priorities, irreverence. And this is what we really need to be dealing with, Christian or non-Christian. We really need to be dealing with and aware of the state of our heart. What our words, what our priorities, what our attitudes reveal about our hearts. There's a great book on parenting, shepherding a child's heart, I always mix them up, Paul or Ted Tripp. It's one of those brothers does it. But their all emphasis is that it's not just about changing your child's behavior. It's the heart that needs to be changed. It's the heart that needs to be shepherded. And what is true of a child is true of us. And Isaiah's words revealed the state of his heart. Isaiah's problem here is that he's aware of his terrible sinfulness and God's awesome holiness at the same time. And this is our great problem. This is the great conundrum. How can we sinners survive in the presence of this awesome God who is just and has the power to condemn instantly? Well, the first answer is that we have to come to accept how sinful we are. 
we have to become unraveled. We have to become undone before God, torn apart before God, before God can put us back together again in the right way. You take the book of Romans, which is probably Paul's greatest summary of the gospel message, that probably one of the greatest summaries of the gospel that's ever been written. In chapters 1 to 3, before he speaks really about what the gospel is, Paul teaches about sin in order that people would be convicted of their sin. In chapter 1, he teaches about how the pagan world has rejected the truth about God and gone after idols and how God has handed them over to unnatural relationships such as men with men. And we see that in the world around us. And then he goes in chapter 2 and speaks to the Jews and basically says, don't you, though, think you're getting off scot-free by pointing the finger at these pagan people because whatever you accuse them of, you're guilty of as well. And he basically says you're more guilty because you have the law of God, which should be teaching you to go in a different way. And then in chapter 3, he continues to show that whether you're a Jew or a non-Jew, we're all guilty before God. And he quotes verse after verse from the Old Testament. And we're just going to read a few of it here. Romans 3 and verse 10. This is what Paul teaches about the natural state of people because of their sin. And he says, this is true of all people. He says, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, and he quotes in the Bible, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of apes, that's a snake, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, do you accept that that is true of you? Do you accept that that is true of your natural state because of sin? Now, maybe you haven't run to kill someone, but you've done it in your heart. And your tongue has been wicked and how it's treated others. And left to yourself, your natural state is that you'll never seek God. You'll never search God. You will go the other way. You see, if we dump grass that this is speaking of us, if we don't accept that, it shows that we're distant from God. We're not seeing ourselves properly. One of the most shocking things as a minister is when I speak to people about their need to be saved. And they say, well, I've lived a good life, William. I haven't done anyone any harm. And outwardly, you may say they're good people, but this is what God says in his word is the state of mankind who turn away from him and are filled with bitterness and evil in their hearts. Do you remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus? Let me ask you a question. What was his biggest problem? The most likely thing you'll say that his biggest problem was his love of money. It was too much. Well, if you read that story carefully, that was not his biggest problem. 
his biggest problem was he thought that he was good. Because you remember he comes and says to Jesus, good teacher or good master, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that he himself wasn't good. But he was wanting this fellow to grasp that anyone who wasn't God isn't good. And Jesus puts to him about keeping the commandments. And he says, I've done it all. That man went away with no hope. Not just because he loved money above everything else. He went away with no hope because he didn't grasp. He was a serious sinner who needed a savior. Have you grasped that? Have you grasped that your righteous acts, the Bible says, are like a filthy rag? Do you know what that filthy rag Isaiah uses? It was a lady's sanitary instrument he was talking about. The most disgusting picture. He says, that's what your righteous acts are. So filthy. So filthy. This leads us to our last point, which is, I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah's encounter of God made him more sensitive to sin, not only to his own sin, but sin in the lives of those around him as well. You see, the problem of an ongoing encounter with sin and an ongoing encounter with the world around us, it makes us less sensitive to sin and its seriousness. I was speaking to somebody in the village this week, and they were saying about how that it's becoming more open, people who are homosexual in their state. And the person's comment was this, even many Christians don't see anything wrong with this. And basically says, sure, aren't they nice people, doing nobody any harm? The problem is the world, as we constantly are exposed to the world, we will become less sensitive to sin and its seriousness. Do you think Isaiah, when he came out of meeting with the Lord, he would have that idea about sin? Oh, sure, they're nice people. Their, their sin doesn't matter. Jesus, when he was healing the man with the withered hand, do you remember that story? And the religious leaders were there and they're wanting to trap him. It says, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus was grieved. He was angry at the sin that he saw in people's hearts. Or think of the apostle Paul when he was in Athens. It says, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. It wasn't Paul's attitude, well, you can go your way and I'll go my way. He was so hurt. He was provoked within himself. He was aroused within him, anger at their sin. And you know, we need, if we're people who are getting closer to God and to Christ, we need to have a growing intolerance of sin. But, and this is a big but, we must always be like Isaiah, who saw the sin in the people around him from first becoming so aware of the sin within himself. 
We must be grieved at all sin, but we need to be grieved particularly at the sin that's in here. Let me just recap what we've seen of Isaiah's vision of himself. Woe is me, I'm doomed. I am lost, I'm undone, I'm unraveled before God. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. You know, this is a, a challenging message. <clears throat> but remember this, this is God's truth. Remember what Jesus said about the truth. The truth will set you, tra- set you free. The truth will set you free. We only begin to have true freedom, which we'll think about next week. We only begin to have true freedom when we understand the truth about ourselves and our sin and guilt before God. 